Welcome. Hi, I'm Mickey, and this is Wikipedia, where I sit down and chat to doctors, professors, athletes, practitioners, and experts in their fields related to health, nutrition, fitness, and well-being. And I'm delighted that you're here. Hey everyone, it's Mickey here. You're listening to Wikipedia, and this week on the podcast, I speak to Professor Howard Schubiner, mind-body medicine practitioner, all about pain. Professor Schubiner discusses his introduction into mind-body medicine early in his career as a doctor after being made aware of it from a friend who had a personal experience of a long-term pain being resolved through pain reprocessing techniques, PRT. Prof Schubiner today on the podcast discusses this, what pain actually is, what conditions there are, clinical trials for to illustrate its effectiveness, how to determine if your pain is structural versus emotional, and what treatment looks like. We also discuss PRT and emotional awareness and expression therapy, and how this can help with mental health disorders, chronic fatigue, and why it could be helpful for long COVID and weight loss resistance. There is a lot of awesome information in this podcast, and we've got numerous resources to support his work, and I think you'll really enjoy it. Dr. Schubiner is a board-certified doctor in paediatrics, adolescent medicine and internal medicine. He was a full professor at Wayne State University for 18 years and now works at Providence Hospital in Southfield, Michigan, USA. He has authored over 60 scientific publications and has given over 250 lectures to scientific audiences regionally, nationally and internationally on topics related to adolescent medicine, ADHD, stress reduction and of course pain. Importantly, he's the founder and director of the Mind Body Medicine Program at Providence Hospital. This program uses the most current research methodologies to treat individuals who suffer from mind-body syndrome or tension myositis syndrome as described by John Sarno. He's created a program that uses both meditative and cutting-edge psychological techniques to help individuals with chronic conditions, such as fibromyalgia, whiplash, back and neck pain, myofascial pain, TMJ syndrome, and so forth. He has such a wealth of information, and I first came across Professor Schubiner at the Metagenics Congress earlier this year and was really stoked that he agreed to come and chat to me on the podcast. So before we crack into it though, can I just remind you the best way to support Wikipedia is to leave a review and give us five stars on your favorite podcast platform and of course subscribe. That way we get this increase of awareness for Wikipedia and other people can benefit from the experts that I am able to speak to. Thanks team. So please enjoy the conversation that I have with Professor Howard Schubiner. Professor Schubiner, thank you so much for taking the time to chat to me today. And I really enjoyed the the presentation you did at the Metagenics Congress. So I'm so happy that you were um, available to chat on Wikipedia, my podcast. Before we kick into it, can you give us a little bit of your uh, professional background and how you became interested in mind-body medicine, if you like? Because 
it, as I understand it, that's not necessarily sort of where you started in your career. That's true. Yeah, I started uh, as a general internal medicine doctor. I also studied pediatrics. I worked in adolescent medicine. I worked for quite a while in attention deficit disorder uh, in adults. Uh, I studied mindfulness meditation and I started doing this mind body medicine work about almost 20 years ago now. And uh, the reason I got into it was just by coincidence or happenstance, really. I was talking to a friend of mine who had a close friend of his who had severe back and leg pain, who was basically cured by reading a book by Dr. Sarno. And I'd never heard of Dr. Sarno, John Sarno. He was a physiatrist, a physical medicine rehab doctor in New York City. He's passed away now, and, is, and he was 94, I think, when he passed away a few years ago. And I was intrigued by his approach which really was helping to understand the underlying causes of pain as being not structural, but in the brain, but not, not, you know, not that the patient was faking or anything. That's real pain. Uh, it's not imaginary, but it turns out the brain can cause real pain. And now scientifically, we know that. Uh, we know how the brain works now much more than he did at that time, but he, figured it out by seeing a lot of people and realizing that a lot of the people he saw didn't have structural injuries, uh, but had severe pain and they could get better by realizing that they were not damaged, that they were not broken, by changing their relationship to the pain, by dealing with any stress or emotional issues that might have been causing it. And people had amazing recoveries from reading his books and using the simple program that he proposed. So I started doing it, and it's worked out pretty well. Yeah, I would say it has. Um, Professor, so when you discovered uh, Dr. Cerno's book, you read it, what was the path for your own development in, in then going on to design your protocols and, and using it with your patients. Like, because as you know, as you said, you know, you had done a number of um, other sort of professional work, if you like. So, so how did that transition actually occur? Well, it was a step-by-step process. You know, I started just talking to patients and seeing patients and learning from patients. And I've been learning from patients every day for the last 20 years. And, um, I began to hear their stories and understand their stories and understand the reasons why they had pain, understand how to help them little by little. I started reading voraciously on everything related to the brain and the mind and, and, uh, and how to help people. And I just kept learning from many, many people. I developed colleagues around the country and around the world who were interested in this work. And we helped each other develop protocols for treating patients. Uh, and then I ended up uh, writing a few books about it. And I ended up you know, working with others to do research on, on these methods and to prove and show that they're actually very effective. And even, I dare to say, more effective than the standard treatments that we currently have for pain. So it was a gradual process, but one which has been very um, invigorating and and fun to do because you know it's fun to challenge ideas and challenge orthodoxy and come up with new ideas especially if they work well and you know so it's it's been quite a journey 
Yeah, and um, and I'm really looking forward to talking to you about um, some successes that have really stood out for you because, of course, you presented on some at the Congress and I've heard you talk on other podcasts. But can we start off, Professor, by actually just getting back to the basics? So even the really sort of 101 question, like what is pain and why does it exist? Yeah, it's a really good question. And uh, people have been struggling to answer that question for many years. Mm. Uh, Our current conception, and these things can change over time, but our current conception is that pain is there to protect us. Pain is is necessary. Children who are born without the ability to experience pain often have a lot of injuries and often die at a young age because pain is protective. Many times pain will occur due to an injury. So if you're injured, uh, your brain will turn on pain most of the time, but not all the time. Mm. But that's how we know that it's the brain turning on pain. We used to think that the, the you know, if you touched a hot stove or something, that your finger would send, quote, pain signals to the brain and the brain would then read those pain signals but it turns out those aren't pains there are no pain signals there are what we call danger signals yeah so the signals that go to the brain are signals of some kind of danger but the brain has to decide and this is the crucial part and a revolutionary part to understand that the brain will decide whether to actually turn on the experience of pain we know that because a lot of times millions of times we've seen in the literature and people have seen in their own lives where they may have an injury, but no pain at all. Yes. I even had a friend who had a nail in his hand, shot a nail in his hand by mistake and had no pain. Um, probably because he was all alone and had to get to the hospital. But the point is the brain decides whether to turn on pain or not. So that's one aspect of pain. Pain is protective. We need it. It helps us. If you break a foot, you need pain because you don't want to walk on a broken ankle. The other, the second thing about pain to understand it is that pain is generated by the brain and pain can be generated by the brain in the complete absence of a physical injury, in the complete absence of any tissue damage at all. And it turns out that the way our brain is designed or constructed or evolved or however you think about it, The fact is, is that stress and emotions activate the exact same parts of the brain as does a physical injury. Mm. So the pain that occurs due to stress or an emotional situation is as real, can be as severe. It's the same as pain that occurs due to a physical injury. Mm. And it turns out, and the third thing is, is that chronic pain can develop in the absence of a physical injury, yeah, because physical injuries heal. Yes. So most people with chronic pain don't have a physical injury because physical injuries heal. But injury, but pain that occurs due to stress or emotional situations can become persistent because of several factors that create a vicious cycle within the brain. The brain learns pain as a neural circuit. It remembers it, and then it can activate it. It can turn it on, and it can turn it off. And it can and it can become persistent when there's significant fear of the pain, focus on the pain, worry about the pain, 
trying to figure the pain out, trying to fix it, being frustrated by the pain, all those things make the pain worse. And situations in people's lives that are ongoing stressful situations also can make pain persistent. And it turns out that most people with chronic pain do not have a structural injury to account for it. That's so interesting. A few things sort of came to my mind as you were talking. And the first was I had quite a significant uh, injury in at university where I accidentally cut my arm on this metal part of a shower. Um, uh, uh, so you turn the shower off, what's that, the, the tap, and it broke off. And I didn't feel any pain until I looked down and then saw that I had this massive gash right down mm. there and I could see my muscle and that mm. and I was very lucky God. not to get an artery and that's that, that is and I remember distinctly that it wasn't sore until I actually saw it. I'm like, oh weird, where's that blood coming from? Um so that is the first thing that sort of comes to mind. And then of course, as a as a runner, you know, we are often um we have injuries and niggles but it does seem that at certain times that like they go away during a run to only come yeah. back either afterwards or in another run like it's like oh actually I didn't feel that my Achilles today which is something that you know you might have injured say four to six weeks ago and had been sort of struggling to get back to a consistent training um, schedule. Um, so I appreciate what you're saying with the the brain sort of switching that on or off. And then the the final thing, which is what I want to ask you about next, is the uh, to do particularly with things like back pain, which I know a lot of people, I know a lot of people personally who are on pain medication for a, a potential injury that occurred four years ago that there's no physical injury yet they, they, they still feel significant pain and are still on painkillers and can't move freely the way that, that they once did. To then go and get an MRI, even though that original injury was like four years ago how helpful is it to uh, be tested for like the MRI for example to see what's going on structurally if there hasn't been a recent injury like is, does that provide us good information or not great information well um, there was a study in Australia where they studied somewhere over 10,000 people who had acute back injuries or acute back pain and one, they followed them up one year later, and less than 1% of them had a structural problem in their back one year later. So it's very, it's, it's unlikely that someone who had an injury four years ago, that it's unlikely that the pain they're having now is due to that injury four years ago. It's unlikely that that pain is due to a structural injury. One of the problems, and that's the same as it were with chronic headaches or chronic back, chronic abdominal pain or chronic pelvic pain. Um, the problem with back pain is that we have imaging techniques, uh, x-rays, CAT scans, and MRIs. And it turns out that x-rays, CAT scans, and MRIs almost always show abnormalities in the back of people who are normal, of people who have no pain at all. 
And so, and the data is very clear on this, and, and all doctors should know that. The problem is, is that when you get, let's say you get an MRI of your back and you're having back pain and it shows bulging discs or degenerative discs, even though those findings are basically normal, even though those findings are, findings are seen in healthy, normal people, the doctor is likely to say, oh, that must be the cause of your pain. Because the doctor can't, one, probably can't conceive of the fact that the pain might be generated by the brain. Number two, they haven't been taught of how to ask the questions to determine if the brain is causing the pain or not. So therefore, they just assume that it must be a physical injury. And if it's a physical injury, then therefore, the culprit must be these degenerative discs and these bulging discs and other mild abnormalities that are actually normal. But the problem with that is that when you tell somebody this is the cause of your back, you have all this, all these bad things on your in your spine, that makes it worse because it creates more fear, more focus on the pain. It makes people more worried about it. It makes people use their backs less. It makes people be more fearful when they stand up, when they sit down, when they bend over, which actually makes the pain worse because the neural circuits are getting feedback from the person that there's a problem. Yeah. And that vicious cycle of pain leading to more fear, leading to more pain creates more back pain. So we're actually can be doing a great disservice to people by getting certain tests and particularly by interpreting them in a way that makes them more fearful. Yeah. I feel like people on the other sort of side of the coin and this isn't a isn't um a necessarily a good thing people like to have to be able to pinpoint it like okay that's the reason what like there's an explanation for why they're you know have they're in the discomfort they're in or they're having that sort of chronic pain they're like right you've solved this for me and it almost gives them something else to um some sort of level of hope um how do people respond, uh, Professor, when you when when you suggest that it is their brain and not their actual injury? Is that a favourable uh, diagnosis for them? I guess. No, most people don't want to hear that. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, you know, I'm only telling people that. Number one, after they're coming to see me, so they kind of know what they're getting into. Number two, after examining them, taking their history, spending a long time and sorting it all out so that we can, we can make that assessment with confidence. But, you know, if, if you're, you know, if I were to go to a pain clinic or a back clinic and I would start telling people, Oh, you've got chronic back pain. It must be due to your brain. Uh, they'd want to strangle me. You know, it would not be taken well because it's it's very easy to misinterpret our work. It's very easy to misinterpret the message that we're trying to give to people. The message we're trying to give to people is that the pain is real. It's not in their head. They're not crazy. There's nothing, uh, you know, it's it's not their fault. It's not because they're weak. But it is real, and this real pain is caused by their brain because they don't actually have structural damage. Therefore, there's hope for complete recovery. Yeah. So 
that's the message we're trying to give. But most, many times people don't hear that message. They only hear, oh, it's in my brain. You must be saying it's not real that I'm imagining it. And therefore they can get very upset and very angry because they don't feel that they're being validated or heard or listened to. And that's the opposite of what we're trying, what we're trying to say. But that's still what happens quite frequently. Yeah. And um, Professor, how do you sort of go about determining whether or not it's a structural issue or it's actually much more of a, a message within the brain? Right. Well, first, you know, the first step is to rule out a structural, a significant structural issue. So if it's, if someone's having headaches, we want to make sure they don't have a brain tumor. We make sure they don't have a bleed in their head. They need to make sure, you know, some severe problem in their, in their eyes, in their sinuses, in their nose, in their throat, in their ears, et cetera. If someone's having stomach pain. We want to make sure there's no problem in the bowel, in the liver, in the spleen, you know, in the kidneys. All those areas need to be checked. And it's the same with backs. It's just that with backs, we don't want to overinterpret, as I mentioned before, findings that are actually mild and findings that are actually normal. But once we've ruled out a significant and severe structural problem, then what we want to do is rule what I what we call rule in a neural circuit problem or a brain-based problem. And you do that by taking a very careful history. You're looking for a variety of things such as people having pain in many places in their body, people who have had other mind-body type syndromes in the course of their lifetime like headaches, anxiety, depression, fibromyalgia, irritable bowel syndrome, etc. People who have a significant amount of stress at the onset of the pain that occurred. And on top of that, we want to look for pain that doesn't make sense, doesn't make sense from a path, from a medical or pathologic point of view, such as pain in the whole body or pain in the whole head, or pain in the whole arm, or pain in the whole torso, or pain that, sh that radiates from one shoulder to the opposite shoulder, or uh, pain that turns on and turns off. It goes away when they're on vacation, or it goes away when they're relaxing, or it starts when they're going to work, or it's, it hurts when they're in certain, sitting in certain chairs but not other chairs, or the pain is triggered by innocuous stimuli such as wind or cold or rain or it's triggered by stress. So we're doing a, and we've written all, we've written all about these in our books, in our articles, but we're doing a very detailed and careful history to sort out, is the pain causing, is the pain caused by the brain or not? And you can do that very easily if you take the time to do this kind of investigation. Yeah. Okay. And is and is this the pain reprocess re reprocessing therapy that you do? So essentially you start by working them up in a medical term, if you like. Um and then what is the process with sort of retraining the brain? And obviously you've got numerous resources and books available, but are you able to sort of share the, the sort of broad principles or or um strategies you use? Well, the way that we treat people is, is again, first of all, we treat them with compassion and caring and listening. We validate that their symptoms are real. We help them understand why they have them because of situations that have occurred in their life and the fact that the injuries have healed. So that's number one. Number two, we give them hope for reversal and we help them see that they can get better and 
we then can we educate them on how the brain works and why this has all occurred. So that's all the first part right there. The second part is then we have two types of therapies that we use. One is called, as you mentioned, pain reprocessing therapy or PRT. And the other one that we use extensively is called emotional awareness and expression therapy or EAET. And so we'll use both of those, both of those processes. The first one, the pain reprocessing, is working to change the neural circuits. The second one, the emotional awareness and expression therapy, is to deal with the emotions and the stressful situations in their life. The principles of the first one, the PRT, are to change your relationship to the symptom, to the pain. And it's not only pain that we treat. We also treat chronic fatigue, chronic insomnia, chronic anxiety, chronic depression, uh, tinnitus, um, uh, food sensitivities, chemical sensitivities, uh, a whole variety of things. But anyway, the, the, the principles of PRT is change your relationship to the symptom to stop being fearful of it, to stop focusing on it all the time, to stop fighting it, to stop being frustrated by it, to stop trying to figure it out because we know what it is, and actually to stop trying to fix it. Yeah. Because all those things give it more power over you, and all those things make the symptom worse by giving feedback to the brain. So when people get pain or their other symptom, we want them to practice being calm to practice smiling at it, to practice telling themselves they're going to be okay, reassuring themselves, empowering themselves to look at the opportunity of having the pain as an as a opportunity to practice, practice calming their brain in the face of the pain, practice doing more rather than doing less. Instead of, instead of if the pain hurts when you're walking, Instead of never walking, we want them to imagine walking with joy and then to start walking with joy and to start walking with a smile and to start walking little by little, not walking 10 miles on the first day. That would be way too much, not too much for them necessarily, but too much for their brain. And so we want to give their brain graded exposure to calming messages while they're walking because neurons that fire together, wire together. And when you're walking with fear, you're learning more and more pain. But when you're walking with joy and when you're walking with calm and ease and empowerment, then you're training your brain that walking is safe and it's not dangerous and you're going to be fine. And that's how you change the neural circuits in your brain. It's interesting that you mentioned gut sensitivities or food intolerances and chemical intolerances uh, as, of course, they, you know, we often experience these with gut-related issues. But in your experience and work, is that sort of reframing and reprocessing in the brain, is that like a useful technique then to use for obviously not allergies per se, but intolerances and, and things like that because of that mind-gut-brain connection? Correct. The... Um if someone, you know, we're, we're not telling people to start eating wheat if they actually have gluten enteropathy, if they have celiac disease, we're not telling people to do that. Yeah. But if their brain is creating symptoms when they eat wheat because their brain is fearful of wheat, 
that's the neural circuit. And they can, and yes, we teach people how to eat foods that have been causing symptoms by neural circuits. We do that all the time. Absolutely. And we do it by the same process. We'd have them, have them look at the food or even even imagine, imagine that plate of, imagine that ice cream bowl in front of you that gives you stomach pain. Just imagine it. What happens? Oh, I get stomach pain. Right. Just looking at the bowl can give you stomach pain. That's showing that your brain is afraid of ice cream. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And so what we're doing then is then we're helping them calm the brain and give themselves reassuring messages while they look, while they imagine looking at the ice cream bowl. That's the first step. And then we have them imagine eating ice cream with joy. And then we have bring out an actual bowl of ice cream and have them look at that and see how they feel. And if they're still feeling upset, then we, again, calm the brain and teach them that they're okay and reassure them. And so over time, we're teaching that eventually they're going to get developed the mindset of I'm safe. I'm not in danger. This is not a problem. This is great. I love ice cream. And then have a tiny little bite and see how they respond and then have a tiny bigger bite and a bigger bite. And pretty soon uh, they may get some symptoms, but if they keep at it, the symptoms will go away. Yeah, so interesting. Um, Professor, have you been able to look at the brain to see what is going on? Because I think about the neurotransmitters like GABA and glutamate, and I wonder if there are there, is, is it involved in that sort of neurotransmitter um, activity or or we don't know, or what's the sort of state of our understanding there? The studies that we've been able to do with pain are fMRI studies. So they're not actually neurotransmitter studies, but they're studies of regions and pathways and circuits in the brain that become activated with more pain or less pain. And in our boulder back pain study, we did show that there were certain areas of the brain that had changed when people recovered from pain in relation to the um, anterior insula, anterior cingulate cortex, uh, and a couple other areas uh, had decreased um, activity after people got out of pain. So we were able to correlate having more pain or less pain with changes in certain regions of the brain functioning. So interesting. And this, I immediately also think of the um, people who have had amputated limbs and and talk about the sensation of that limb being sort of still present and having pain in the area despite it actually, you know, no longer being part of their body. Is that the same sort of brain pathway and brain messaging that that you're working with? Yeah, exactly. You don't need an arm to have arm pain. You know, we know that. And you don't need an injury in your arm to have arm pain either. So the same principles apply that the brain can generate pain in the absence of a body part or in the absence of damage to a body part. It turns out that our brain generates all of our experiences. In fact, our brain generates what we see. We don't see with our eyes. Light comes in our eyes, but our brain generates the images. And sometimes the images that we see are incorrect. You know, our brain is just trying to do it the best it can. It creates an image that may not actually be correct. Same is true with hearing. Sometimes people hear their voice, their name being called. Sometimes people may feel their cell phone vibrating in their pocket when it's not. Uh, it's it's quite common that our brain is not 100% perfect and that doesn't always reflect the real world. 
And in the case of pain, uh, the brain often creates pain in the absence of an injury because stress and emotions are universal in everyone's life. And when someone has a bad day and, you know, has a rocky day at work and gets a headache, you know, we don't say they're crazy. We just, we just kind of say, yeah, stress can cause pain. And everyone knows that it's not rocket science. You know, if you're, if you're, uh, someone's a pain in your neck and you start getting neck pain, you know, well, <laughs> there's a message there. You know, the pain is there for a reason. The pain is there to help you. It's not to betray you. It's not there to harm you or torment you. Your brain is creating a message to say, Hey, there's a problem. Yeah. Yeah. You know, someone who's a pain in your neck, yeah. you know, you just have to, you, it's up to us to realize that the neck pain isn't due to a structural problem in the neck. It's due to the person who's a structural problem in your life. That's the key in understanding that. It is. And yet that's also possibly even harder because it's sort of, because you then have to face whatever obstacle, whatever emotional sort of baggage comes with the realization that there are relationships in your life or you or there are things which will need changing which are hard, like your job, relationships, where you live, I don't know, anything. Like that almost seems like a much bigger task than I have a sore neck, I guess, that someone can fix. Well, when people feel trapped in their lives, uh, you know, there's often no way out. Yeah. And they they feel trapped. They don't know what, you know, they may not be able to fix a situation. They have strong emotions about a situation or they have strong emotions about a situation that they feel they can't speak up or they can't say anything or they can't express their feelings and they hold it all in. And when you're holding in fear, when you're holding in anger, when you're holding in guilt, when you're holding in grief or sadness, uh, the brain's going to react to that because that's dangerous. It's, it's, it's the brain is feeling in danger. There's something wrong in your life. And the brain may create uh, depression or anxiety or headache or back pain or, or, you know, uh, whole body pain or ringing in the ears or the brain may create a whole variety of, of sensations in the body or situations uh, due to stress and emotions. And this is this just being human. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, everyone has this at some point in their life. Yeah. And you mentioned, of course, mental health, depression, and anxiety. The the EAET, is that like a method that's well known to be used in those kind of, those mental health conditions, Professor? Or is that, or is that generally speaking, where you would use them? Well, we use the emotional awareness and expression therapy for anybody who has issues in their life that are unresolved or issues in their life that they're still having feelings about, yeah. whether the issues are current or in the past. And the manifestation of those issues can be anxiety or depression, but can also be pain or or irritable bowel or headaches or whatever. So um, we use the AET model when when the PRT isn't enough or people also have significant uh, unresolved emotional issues in their life currently or in the past. And the process of, of doing EAT is to, is to help people recognize what the emotions are, recognize that, yes, I was angry about this, yeah. or I was really felt guilty about this, and to allow them to express those emotions in safe and healthy ways. Safe and healthy ways, meaning that they can feel the emotion, they can write about it, they can scream about it, they can imagine acting out the emotion, they can imagine beating somebody up that they're really angry at. That's a healthy thing to do. 
it may seem violent, but it's not violent because you're not actually doing it. We never advocate violence. Yeah, yeah. It's just a release <laughs> of the emotion. We're helping people to express to release the emotions exactly and then move through those emotions to compassion for themselves and compassion for others and to repairing relationships if they can if you're really angry with your sibling or your or, or a parent uh, oftentimes those relationships can be repaired if you can let the anger out and let it go and then move toward forgiveness uh, some situations you can't repair but some situations you can you can repair the power alignment. So if you were abused as a child, you had no power. You, the person who was abusing you had all the power. And so we have this process called memory reconsolidation, where we go back in time and help people imagine loving that child who was themselves mm. and empowering that child who was themselves to take action, to get out of there or to fight back or to speak up or to call the police, or do whatever needs to be done in imagination to begin to have them see that they can change their memories of this, which seems really weird. You can't change what happened, obviously. But it turns out memories are changing all the time. So uh, we can help people change their memory and help relieve them of some of the pain that they suffered back then and help to really give that child who was themselves what they needed and they couldn't get at that time. Yeah, yeah. It's a really unusual process and seems strange or weird, but it it works. It works really well. And we have re randomized controlled research trials to show that it works. Yeah. And then it works better than standard pain therapies. Yeah. No, and I, I appreciate there is quite a bit of literature in this space that uh, illustrates what you've just been talking about and there are are there also trials whereby a placebo is used like a is it sham uh surgery is that the term that um i'm thinking of whereby um which again illustrates the you know the the injury side of things and the um resolution of the injury when you're not even actually having surgery but you think you're having surgery is that is that how that works? Yeah, yeah. There have been several um, randomized controlled sham surgical trials where half the people were randomized to get the actual surgery and half the people were randomized to get the sham surgery. They thought they were getting the surgery, but none of the people in the study knew which one they actually got, whether it was the real surgery or the sham surgery. And in one trial where they did with... Um, repairing uh, meniscal tears in the knee, uh, the people who got the, the real surgery had a dramatic drop, average drop in pain from six out of 10 to three out of 10. Uh, but the people in the sham surgery, sham surgery arm of the trial had the exact same drop from six to three out of 10, showing that the sham surgery worked just as well as the real surgery. And that's been done in a couple other um, types of surgeries yeah. uh, as well. Yeah. So, Professor, sort of across your years of working in this area, how 
has your uh, how has the medical profession sort of viewed the work that you do uh, in light of these randomized controlled trials and of course the thousands of case studies which aren't published but are the sort of lived experiences of of people that you work with like is it more favorable now than what it once was well i would say that um it's it's a lot easier to ignore our work uh, when there's only case reports. Yeah. Uh, but it's a, getting a little bit harder to ignore our work now that we have randomized controlled trials. So we think that we're making some progress in alerting the general public and the general medical profession to our work. However, there's a long way to go, I would say, and it's clearly not widely accepted at this point in time. Yeah. I can imagine, though, for someone like you who sees it on a daily basis, how you profoundly change someone's life, like that must be the most satisfying sort of feeling. Professor, have, are there any sort of really standout cases across your career that you think will always stay with you in terms of the success of your approach? Yeah, there's many. And you're right, it is incredibly gratifying. And I've, I tell my patients that all the time. And uh, they say, you saved my life all the time. I mean, it's not, it's not uncommon to hear that. Uh, and that's what I tell other doctors. I say, well, if you want to save people's lives, this is a great field to go into. You can save a life every day, you know, where most doctors don't really save lives every day. They do their work. But, um, I mean, just yesterday I saw a man who, uh, he talked about food sensitivities. The only foods he could eat were chicken and rice for three years. Oh, goodness. He couldn't even drink water. When he drank water, he got severe head pain and nerve pain. When he ate any other food, he had severe head pain and nerve pain. And so he was stuck in with the only eating chicken uh, and rice. He had other symptoms as there were other things which triggered smells started to trigger, weather patterns started to trigger his pain, all sorts of uh, what we would call conditioned responses. And I was just talking with him yesterday, and uh, he's fine. He can eat any foods he wants now. He can smell any. He couldn't read my book because the, he was reacting to the smell of the ink on the page. Oh, my goodness. You know, that's how sensitive, that's how sensitive he was. He would be in the basement, and he would, he would start getting heart. He would start getting chest pain, and then he'd realize, oh, there must be a storm coming in. And he, he wasn't even close to seeing it or hearing it his brain was so super sensitized to all sorts of things and you know he's not a hundred percent better yet but he's 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 almost there he's getting there but he can eat any foods he wants now he couldn't drive his truck because of the smells he couldn't go to work because of the smells uh and he just uh he just uh yesterday he recorded a a, a videotape describing all of his his uh his process and uh he was on a he was on a support group website for um um mast um mast cell activation syndrome mcas which is a syndrome that's purported to be um uh, a severe i mean it's purported to be a medical syndrome and maybe some people have it but 
Anyway, that's what he was told he had uh, because of all of these sensitivities to chemicals and foods, et cetera. Uh, and he's, and he, uh, when he started on this website, he said there were 100,000 people on the website, 100,000 people suffering with this syndrome, this tremendous amount of suffering. Some people couldn't hardly eat any foods, just like he was. And uh, now he went, he got off the website and now he's better. He went back on the website. Now there's 200,000 people on the website, not 100,000 more suffering and he started talking on the website about how he's doing and how he's better and how he's how he got cured you know and their response was to kick him off the website there's almost um more safety for the people who are experiencing that pain to disbelieve like a case like your patient and sort of i don't know there's almost community in pain i don't know like you there's identity there's you know this is what you have this is who you are you know i think i think yeah i don't blame people for that at all yeah, i mean yeah. you you need a community you need to feel loved you need to feel cared about you need to feel that people understand you everyone needs that and and you know if you're suffering that much you need to try to make sense of it uh, what we're saying is that there's a different way to make, one way to make sense of it is you've got a horrible, incurable disease and you just have to suffer with it. That's one way of making sense with it. But we feel that there's a way out. We feel that there's a way for people to recover from these neural circuit or mind-body disorders if they can realize that that's what they're dealing with. And if they can understand our message that we're not invalidating their symptoms or their suffering we're validating them as real and we're giving them hope because these are neural circuits as opposed to structural damage yeah completely professor do you think this is a bit of a left field question do you think there's utility in your methods for uh people who are resistant to losing weight because there are you know there are people out there who legitimately uh, do all the things that should result in weight loss, but and they're absolutely obsessed about it, yet they cannot drop body fat. Like do you, like your methods, it feels like that even the EAET or something might because it's not a pain per se, or it's not a body pain, but it's definitely an emotional pain for them. Yeah. It's a great question. I had someone ask me this question two days ago, as a matter of fact, and I'll, I told her, I don't know the answer. I don't know the answer to that. I think it's a really interesting idea. Uh, we know that the body does develop and the brain develops, you know, weight set points, uh, which makes it hard to lose weight because the brain is going to be fighting you. We know that people who have lost, you know, 100 or 200 pounds have to maintain incredibly low calorie diets as soon as they relax go from 500 to 700 calories they start gaining weight even though 700 calories a day is not a heck of a lot of calories they start gaining weight on that so uh and we know it's a lot easier to prevent weight gain than it is to to lose weight we know that for sure uh, but clearly there is an emotional component to weight and body image. Uh, there's no question about that. And uh, I don't know if any of these techniques might be valuable for weight loss, but maybe that's something you can study. Yeah, 
Yeah, yeah, yeah, this is true. Um, <laughs> Professor, how, like, obviously in, you know, post-COVID times, people, there, I still talk to people who struggle with that either long COVID or post-COVID fatigue. Is there utility in your methods for helping resolve those conditions, do you think? Yes, I think we know much more about that than we do about the weight gain loss issue. Uh, we do know that many people with post-COVID or long COVID syndrome did not actually have documented COVID infection. Uh, we know that precursors to long COVID, people with anxiety, loneliness, depression, uh, people with adverse childhood events in their life are more likely to get long COVID. Uh, we know that the symptoms of long COVID are real, but the and, and I'm not talking now about the symptoms of people who have had severe COVID, who've been hospitalized, who've been on ventilators, who have heart damage or lung damage. I'm not talking about those symptoms. I'm talking about the people who had mild COVID, who recovered from it, but yet have ongoing fatigue, ongoing brain fog, ongoing headache, ongoing um, other uh, uh, other. Uh, symptoms like tinnitus and, and chronic widespread pain. Those people are the same kinds of people that we treat every day as mind-body disorders. And we have treated a number of people with long COVID successfully using our techniques of the assessment, the education, the pain reprocessing, and the emotional awareness and expression. And so we feel quite confident saying that a significant proportion of long COVID, most likely the majority of it, but probably not all of it, is a mind-body phenomenon and can be ameliorated or uh, resolved with these with this approach. Yeah. Do we know, do people who, who suffer more from long COVID, do they fear COVID more? Is it anything to do with the COVID aspect or is it all of the other things which you've obviously, you know, mentioned might um, result in you, you, it, it would be difficult to generalize uh, for each, for everyone, but clearly people who have more fear of COVID are more likely to get long COVID. That is true. People who um, have more emotional stress and distress in their lives at the time they get COVID are also going to be more likely to have long COVID. Yeah, interesting. Um, Professor, how long does this take for someone if they have a, an issue that they that does respond to PRP or EAET. Um, well, first, are there people who don't respond to it? And then, second, if you do respond, what's the sort of prognosis like for them in terms of their resolution? Well, no one, no one with no one who treats people and patients. Uh, with any therapy can say they have 100% success. So we, we don't, we don't say you can have 100% success. That would be, uh, you know, that would be unrealistic. However, we do have, we, in our Boulder back pain study, 75% of the people we treated were better in one month, dramatically better going, uh, and that's a really fantastic response, right? Um, it, for most people, it takes, several weeks to several months and say in the order of two 
two weeks to three to four months for most people. Some people it takes six months to two years. The the person I was telling you about who could only eat chicken or rice, it's taken him two years uh, to recover. So it's it's variable. And does it depend on how long you've been experiencing the pain to begin with or, or not even really that? Not necessarily. It, it doesn't necessarily. Uh, the people in the Boulder back pain study had an average duration of pain of over 10 years. And yet in one month, 75% of them were in the virtually pain-free category. Amazing. Yeah. Professor, uh, how widely used are your techniques in your uh profession. So for example, I'm based in New Zealand. Am I likely to have a practitioner around me that that could help me? Or or actually are your books enough? Like so what are the sort of resources that people do really need to be successful? Hey, um, most people do not have a physician in their area who does this work. There are very few few physicians who do this work. There are many there are a greater number of counselors, coaches, mental health therapists, psychologists, social workers who do this work. Mm -hmm. Nevertheless, the vast majority of uh, behavioral counselors do not are not aware of this work and do not do it. So, um, but as you point out, we do have resources for people. There are books that many I've written, but also other people have written. Um, there are websites that have programs, online programs, and uh, there's a lot of resources that people can access. Uh, there's the there's a professional organization, the PPDA, the Psychophysiologic Disorders Association. There's the TMS Wiki, which is a peer peer run group for support and education for these disorders. Um, and then, like I say, there's a bunch of online programs and and referrals for people who do uh, th this kind of therapy and counseling um, remotely so you don't have to be in the same town as your um, the people the person helping you yeah yeah that's awesome and of course we will put links to your resources in our show notes and also the society that you just mentioned as well they may be a couple of good really good starting points for people who are who are interested yeah. Yeah, we'll we'll get all those resources to you. Oh, amazing. Um, Professor, finally, what are you working on right now that's interesting or exciting for you? Like any other sort of uh, particular um, injuries or or papers you're writing or anything like that? Yeah, we um we have a we have a paper that we submitted for publication on the correlation between racism and chronic and pain uh, we've we just finished a research study where we evaluated over 200 people with chronic neck and back pain and determined how many of them had a structural problem versus a non-structural problem and we determined that 88 percent had non-structural problems which is a very high number yes. so we're hoping to publish that uh, hoping to publish that study soon uh, we are starting two new research studies. Uh, one is in Denver, Colorado. Yoni Ashar is planning to do a PRT study on back pain. And a group out of, with our help, but out of Chicago, one of the Chicago medical schools, John Burns, 
is hoping, I think he's just got funded to do another EAET study. So there's a bunch of stuff that we're excited about going forward. Yeah, now that sounds super interesting. And um, I think for anyone that uh, struggles with chronic pain, and I see and hear just a lot of it, and of course ongoing stress in, in light of you know everything in the world right now, I think that people will find this conversation and all of your work, like you've done numerous podcasts and I've seen presentations, uh, I think they'll find this extremely interesting and hopefully really helpful. Uh, Professor, thank you for your time, I really appreciate it. Alrighty, so if you are someone who has experience of chronic pain or know of anyone with experience of chronic pain, please share this podcast interview with them and also go to Professor Schubiner's website, unlearnyourpain.com, which is in the show notes because there is so much great information there and I think that you'll really uh, get a lot from it, particularly if this is your first experience or even first exposure to the idea of mind-body medicine. And next week on the podcast, I bring to you a second conversation with Dr. Nikki Key on the back of the publication of her new book, Hormones, Health and Human Potential. Until then though, you can catch me over on Facebook at Mickey Willardin Nutrition, over on Twitter and Instagram at Mickey Willardin, or over on my website mickeywillardin.com where you can sign up to one of my programs or book a one-on-one consult with me. All right team, until next week, have a great week. See you later.